Alexa, who is Adam Ferrara? Adam Ferrara is an American actor and comedian known for playing the roles of Chief Needles Nelson on Rescue Me, Sergeant Frank Fuelli opposite Edie Falco on Nurse Jackie. He was a co-host on the U.S. version of Top Gear. He has had three Comedy Central specials and his new album is called It's Scary In Here. Adam's new podcast is a big hit and available everywhere. Sounds like it could be funny. Sounds to me like 30 minutes you'll never get back. Hi guys, thank you for joining us again or checking us out for the first time. Either way, we are glad you are here. And another great show for you this week. My guest in the ADD interview, you know him from The Sopranos and his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, it is Michael Imperioli. And we want to welcome everyone from our Talk To Me Tuesday family. That's our conversation we have every week, 9 o'clock Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Go to my website, click the link, and join us. And our superfan shout-out is for Jennifer. Say hi to Jennifer, boys and girls. Hey, Jennifer. Jennifer Oh, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. <laughs> those, uh, those voices are the people I love. My beautiful wife, Alex. Hello there. My pal and pod producer, Marcus Stern. Triple P. Hey, man. Good to see you. And my lifelong friend, writer comedian, a man who searches for answers to life's questions on apartments.com. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Yes. <laughs> Philip Ramblin' Man Tag. How are you, pal? I'm a Ramblin' Man. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, you moved again. I did. I moved. I uh, I distract myself. Yeah. Yeah. You moved again. See, but for, for those of you who are just joining us, here, here's we all we all open up our lives for you on this show. And and Phil's mechanism for dealing with anything is either moving, buying a car, or getting married. So. <laughs> all right. Well, this time I moved, so I don't have to give any. I don't have to give anybody any money. That's yeah, the good news. That's good. So yeah. Uh, yeah, but you moved again, uh, and now you're up in the Hollywood Hills. I am in the Hollywood Hills. Yeah. Baby. He's all the yes. way up there. And you have have you found salvation yet? Have you found salvation in this move? I found the Hollywood sign. Yeah. Okay, so That's you moved. Not... And the other thing about, about the move, are you settled in yet? Are you all settled? I'm trying, man. I'm just, you know what it is? I'm tired. I got to get in shape, man. I, I just, uh, I forgot how tiring moving is. I'm not, I, I hired movers and I was exhausted. You really? I mean? It's like, <laughs> these guys did all the work and I'm like, shit, I got to take a nap. Oh my God. <laughs> What I mean, was so tired, exhausting? Dude. What? What was so exhausting? He's probably up a hill. You live up a hill? Yeah, I live up a hill. I had to move a box. You there know, you I'm, go. I'm getting, I'm getting my hair hurt. My hair hurt. That's how, that's how much what? in pain I was. I, I don't know. I just pictured that uh, cartoon where they're moving a piano and it goes up and then it rolls back yeah, down. Then he real. rolls it back up. <laughs> yeah. And... yeah. So, but, yeah so, uh, so, Phil, you moved. You got a new location, a new outlook on life. I do. I have a new outlook on life. I feel inspired. Mm -hmm. I'm in a great mood. And you great. can't take me out of that mood. I'm not trying to, my friend. I'm telling you. I put the over under at two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. Uh, yeah. All right. We got to talk later, Adam. Yeah. The over under is two weeks. Uh, oh, man. He's, he's, I'm not saying that. Phil's trying to outrun his problems. I'm just saying Phil's problems are smarter than him and have followed him to the new place. <laughs> right. I'll tell you what did follow me. The ghost. I know. Oh, I'm not oh I know. Well, uh, Phil, I'm just curious, like when you say it followed you there and you know it's there, was it like rooting through the refrigerator and being like, Phil, where's the mayo? Did yeah. you pack the mayo? <laughs> it was like that ghost in Ghostbusters shoving the hot dogs in its mouth. <laughs> just looking over at Phil going, we must yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, my God, Adam. That's how I picture his ghost now. Yeah. That yep. is, I like your ghost now. Yeah. So, Phil, so Phil's got the ghost. For, the, for those of you just catching up, go back to the other podcast. Phil's grandmother lives in the bookcase. He's got a couple of uncles. There's all kinds of wacky shit going on in Phil's world. <laughs> so, Mark, we're sitting here, right? Where I'm in the studio. I'm talking to Phil. And I can't help him because Phil has COVID rules. So I'm not allowed to go. Intense yeah. COVID rules. He does. Rule. Phil has very intense COVID rules. Phil has a pre-existing condition, so that's why he's nervous. He's he's an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Glad you took great delight in that, Alex. <laughs> I, I just I just ignore him at this point. I just I ignore him at this point. That. Yeah. Are you too stern? <laughs> I'm laughing at Alex laughing. I love you, buddy. Oh, it wasn't that oh. funny. <laughs> So, honey, I'm in the studio, right? I'm in the studio, and I'm talking. I can't be there. And this is like, Phil, this is the first move that I'm not involved with, and I'm actually having separation anxiety. So I keep calling. Well, I'm talking him through this. I'm like, you got to get a Murphy bed if you don't have the room. 
Nah, nah, nah. Maybe a sofa bed, right? So we're having this whole <laughs> discussion. So he calls me up. I'm in the studio. He calls me up because you saw a demon. Yeah. I did? Yeah, he saw a demon. Uh, he's like, dude, dude, I'm in the new place. I'm in the new place. There's a demon here. I'm like, Phil, it could just be a lawyer. Calm down. <laughs> yeah. Given my history, it could have very well been yeah. a lawyer. So he's flipping out because now the ghosts are following him. And you think the ghosts are following you because you saw it on Ghost Adventures. Am I right? Yeah, Zach Bagan says so. Okay, good. So at least we have a concrete theory. <laughs> so right. there, there's a definition by this gentleman who can define ghosts and demons. It's a guy on basic cable, he believes. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but so Phil 20, calls me. 20 seasons, man. Yeah, 20 seasons. 20 seasons. Okay. So Phil calls me up. He's like, I'm sending you a picture of these ghosts, and I don't want you to shit on them. Okay. <laughs> I'm in the, so this is the call. <clears throat> Listen. I know you look at the shit I send you and you find like things that other things that it is, but you're going to look at that and go, oh, okay. I'm sending it to you right now. Okay. So he sent me the picture. I looked at it. He was like, it's a demon, right? It's a demon. Move the lamp and the demon will subside. All right. All right. The demon evaporated. But it's still. Okay. Oh, my goodness. It was like that shadow. No, there he is again. Now he's on the other side. Move the other lamp. Why is he fucking doing that? It's here for your soul, obviously. What a dick. Just move the lamp, and I think the demon will evaporate. All right, I moved it. No, no more demons? No, it's good. What do you, you guys are like in eighth grade, or no, sixth grade. Were you guys having this conversation... Like between windows with tin cans connected by a string. You guys both exactly. seem like you're 12 yeah. in this. And yeah. it feels like, there's something in the closet, Adam. You got to help me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, we're two grown men. <laughs> so basically, over the phone, I performed an exorcism. You're a good friend, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, Matt, you're calling me up screaming. It's a demon. Yeah. I don't want you shitting on this. This is a demon. Phil, move the lamp. All right, the demon's gone. Yeah, it was so quick. Yeah, yeah. And so, so he's all flipped out over the deep. And you get mad at me that I don't go down this rabbit hole with you. Yeah, I know you I wasn't, do. I wasn't mad. You know, I just like my use of terminology. Like, not not that, okay, there was no demon. The demon evaporated. Yeah. <laughs> that was my terminology. Hey, you know what I liked? What? He's like, there's a demon. And then when you told him to move the lamp, he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, oh. This is what I like. When a demon finally left, I mean, when Phil moved the lamp. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> This was the uh, this was the the emotional release after this encounter. No, no more demons. That's <laughs> <laughs> the bullet. Yeah. <laughs> or do you think that was Adam's right again? <laughs> yeah. It's all your fault, Adam. By the way, because you put this crap in my head. How could I? Put, what am I? Am I the guy on basic cable? Hookie bookie, these things are real. How did I put you, it in your head? Well, yeah. you're not that guy, but you are the guy like looking at my apartment. And what do you go to? I have a murder tub. My tub is a murder tub. Yes, you sent me a picture. You sent Alex and I pictures of the new place. Isn't this nice? I go, I love everything except the murder tub. So how is it a murder tub? The place is only here since 2008. How is it a murder tub? You saw a picture of the tub. Every crime scene photo I looked at where someone got killed in the tub, that's the tub. That's the, It looks like the tub that people get killed in. It is a generic Just... tub-like tub. It's a murder actually, tub. Actually, it's not a generic tub at all. It's a sunken tub. It's a unique tub. I never had a tub like this before. It's a, it's a unique tub. Yeah, it's like a grave. <laughs> <laughs> right away, you know, the people are being, dying in my tub. You th then you put the shit in my head. Then I see the demon. Okay. All right, yeah. Phil. So, uh, look, I, I apologize that the demons are following you. Phil, can you at least pour some Clorox down that drain, please? Just to be safe, Phil. Be She's safe. not saying it's a murder tub. Just to be safe. And you Phil, want me to pour bleach down? So bleach kills spirits? Is that what you're saying? DNA. It kills evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, a little of both. Just in case there's an investigation, you got to explain yourself. You want a clean start. The point is this, Phil, you look for external answers to internal problems. I, I've, ch I've chosen to meditate to go within, and so has Michael Imperioli. And if anybody knows anything about a murder tub, it would be a guy from The Sopranos. <laughs> murder tub so i want you guys to listen to this and we'll see you on the other side we're looking at the most well-known ways to get rid of a fiery demon from hell move the lamp and the demon will subside all right the demon 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You're listening to the Adam Ferrara podcast. This is 30 minutes you'll never get back. Ah, I got to lay down. Pay attention when I'm talking to you, boy. ADHD, it's not just for kids. Nice boy, but doesn't listen to a word you say. Welcome to the ADD interview. It's not that you're not interesting, it's just that I can't focus. And my guest this week is... Oh, look, a bird! My guest this week is an Emmy Award-winning actor, writer, director. He's also the lead singer and guitarist of the band Zopa. He's a meditation teacher. His latest project is Talking Sopranos podcast with uh, my friend and friend of the show, Steve Sharipper. And I'm very grateful he has made some time for us today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's Michael Imperioli. How are you, pal? Hello, Adam. How are you? Good to see you, my friend. Thank you for being nice here. Nice to see you. Yeah, and we Thanks were just for having me. Yeah, we were just talking before uh, before we turned the mics on that uh, you are going back to New York. Moving back to New York, yeah, I, I've been. I never quite really left. We moved into to Santa Barbara in 2012, mm-hmm. but I was always back and forth a lot because my family was there and stuff. And and then yeah. in 2000, end of 2018, I moved back for like a year, almost the better part of a year for work. Mm-hmm. But now. We're kind of making it permanent and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, New York's always home, so. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't really leave you. It's it's no. like I'm out here in, in Santa Monica now, and it doesn't. Here's one thing I know is, Michael, people like they don't get it. It's like, you know, some people think, you know, what rude, look, rude implies intent. I'm, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> I'm used to moving at a certain pace, you know. It's hurry and it's also being in so, such close proximity with millions of people all the time. You have to have some kind of armor. Yeah. It's too much. You yeah. know, it's full. when I first moved to, and Santa Barbara is a little town. It's not even, I mean, LA is busy compared to you know mm-hmm. santa monica is busy to compare to santa barbara santa barbara is like a sleepy town so i remember walking down the street you know in new york you walk down the street you can kind of almost brush shoulders with people no one will give it a second thought like sure. you you can't get that close to people on the street here then without them you know cringing in fear or cowering or screaming yeah. or hitting, hitting you or something yeah and it's very the, the, different also, the reaction when we grew up and your dad was a bus driver in the Bronx. Right? Yes, he was. Yeah. And uh, there's a certain kind of going out to in New York, going out into New York to earn a living, to come back home. There's a certain amount that armor, like you said, that gets transferred to the kids. It's a non-spoken communication, but we do have that energy is coming in and out of the house when we are very young. And uh, I just remember my father coming home from work. And there was a decompression time that had to happen, you know? Yeah, there's a decompression. I mean, it's it, there's a lot of energy on the street. And mm-hmm. You absorb that and you interact with it and you have to be, you know, it, it affects you. you yeah. Know? And you have to have some kind of force field around you. Otherwise, you'll lose your mind. You may lose your mind anyway. But, um, <laughs> but New Yorkers are also very compassionate people, you know? I mean, you, it seems like, you know, it's not... Whatever, like you said, that gruffness is not an uncaring quality. It's no. just, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a it's a functional. It's it's necessary energy to function in that environment, but it's not exactly. It's not for lack of compassion or empathy for other people. Exactly. But uh, so your dad was a bus driver. Your mom was a uh, a secretary in a um, in a school. And if I if my research is accurate, you were on your way to medical school. 
And you pulled no, I was on my way to college to undergrad, maybe pre med. Okay, not medical school. I'm no. not that smart. <laughs> um, uh, I was about to go to college. I went upstate to Albany for the orientation in the summer, and then I was going to enter in September. And the mm-hmm. night before I was supposed to leave to go up there, I backed out and decided to go to acting school. Yeah, I read that, and I'm like, I have to ask how that went over. That went over, actually not, you know, my parents were always very supportive. I think mm-hmm. they kind of were expecting it in a weird way. Um, they weren't really that shocked. Yeah. And they were always very supportive and still are. Um, you know, they basically said, listen, it's your life. You got to do what you got to do, you know. I mean, I, I, I think they, they had enough faith in me to know that um, whatever I was going to do, I'd be serious at it. Yeah. No. So um because I was I was a good student, you know, and whatever I did whether it was sports or or academics like I always took it seriously and worked worked at it. So yeah. I think they felt some confidence based on that. I had so, that I had that when I was when I was sitting down to talk to you, I was like I wanted to ask you what you had in common with Chrissy from the Sopranos. And that's the quality you had. He seemed to like he wanted responsibility. He would work on himself. Yeah, that was the one thing I really admired about him is that he he did the work. Yeah. Be it, you know, he wanted to rise up the ranks in the in in the mob and he mm-hmm. actually did the legwork, you know what yeah. I mean? And and then when he wanted to get into the business, show business, you know, he didn't like hire somebody to write a script or just walk around saying I got a great idea for a movie, I just need somebody to write it for me. He like you know, bought final draft or whatever you know whatever he bought and, <laughs> yeah. and 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 read books and tried and eventually wrote something i mean he he worked on his relationship although it wasn't always successful but yeah right. he he did you know um as I, I we've been on the talking sopranos podcast we just kind of wrapped up jackie jr's story mm-hmm. where jackie we just did the episode where he gets killed and i think christopher resented Jackie Jr. because Tony was very protective over Jackie Jr. And then it comes out explicitly in one scene. And Tony's like, I don't want this for Jackie Jr. I promised his father. And Chris was like, well, it's okay for me. It's not okay for him. It's like, what, you know, well, who am I to you then? Just some guy that you can, you know, put in harm's way. And, um, you know, I, 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 I like that about Christopher, that he really didn't expect life, you know, that, you know, somebody owed him a living or that, you know, he wasn't entitled yeah in a lot of ways he he worked for it, whereas jackie jr was very entitled and expected everything to go his way and um yeah i admired that about him yeah is there any then did you bring that to him or was that in there or was that in one of was that in one of these scripts you wrote i think if you wrote five scripts if i remember correctly. i wrote five scripts the pilot obviously was written before i was involved the pilot had towards the end Christopher mentions to Tony that his cousin Gregory's girlfriend is a development girl in Hollywood. And she says, I could sell my story, you know, to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So that seed was there, whether or not that kind of got expanded on or expounded upon because of who I was or what I was doing. I don't really know. Um, I based Christopher on somebody I knew. I mean, at least for the pilot uh, was a guy who was, from New York who got involved a little bit on the periphery of organized crime and got really freaked out by it and was thinking about going into the movie business and that never really happened but there was something in him like I'd watch him sometimes and his behavior was almost like he was always larger than life like Mm -hmm. his reactions to everything were always and Christopher was like that, like everything was bigger than life. And I thought, you know, when, when you're putting together this ensemble, everybody can't be the same, you know, everyone's got to have an, you know, and, yeah. you know, Tony Soprano is Tony Soprano. And somehow I thought that would work for Christopher because very, this kind of impulsive, you know, his emotions, his emotions really kind of lead him, Christopher. He's not as calculating as some of the other guys. Christopher's much more emotional. And I just used that. I never told a guy that I, I did that, and nor nor did I ever told anybody else who who it was. I don't think I ever will. He okay. Might want, he might want to be reimbursed for 
<laughs> now, did you adapt that when you saw the cast and figured out how to fit in? Was that a was that a did you call an audible at the line or did you? Just... I don't think so. I think it just was instinctual. You yeah. Know? Uh, I think it made sense, and it was just instinctual. I mean, a lot of acting is, I think. Yeah, and it, it, it it's it's shaped and molded by the other energies that are there. I, yeah. Uh, I, I by all accounts, I mean, I. Edie mentioned to me and and uh, uh, Steve and and a couple of, and I I got to hang out with uh, uh, with James a couple times. Um, there's a gentleness to him. There's a gentleness in his eyes. Yeah, there was. There was a gentleness. There was also a um, a volatility. And yeah. There was a, you know, there was a there was a absurd absurdist streak you know he loved he loved when like the wheels fell off like you know when when things didn't go as planned and or yeah. thing you know things fucked up like yeah. he loved that you know yeah. i think it, it appealed to his sense of humor that you know you plan all this stuff out and it's this multi-million dollar hollywood thing and then like some stupid thing happens and derails the whole thing you yeah. know what i mean um he had a great sense of humor um he didn't take himself very seriously but it took his work very seriously yeah, you know? that's. I want to ask you because, by all accounts, Michael, it seemed like a very happy house. You seemed like it was a. Yeah, it was. I mean, he, as an actor, out of all the cast, you know, bore the biggest burden because he was in it the most, mm -hmm. and um, you know, that's a lot. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility, and um, you know, it was a lot of pressure. I think you know what happened to him was he became so famous very suddenly. Yeah. And he was a very big guy and, you know, there's no mistaking him, you know, and I think that was a, a big adjustment yeah, to his life because he was somebody who was, was very private, like, like most of us are. And, and suddenly he was very, and very beloved by people, especially in New York, but, you know, wherever he would go, that's Tony Soprano, you know, it was a lot, it was a lot of, to adjust to, I think. And, and, um, I think he just had started to adjust to the life after that. And, you know, when I, the last time I saw him was about three weeks before he died. And he just seemed really relaxed and really happy and, and kind of like, I think he even said it that day. He goes, finally, I feel like some of that nonsense has kind of calmed down a bit, you know? Yeah. Um, so at least he found some sense of, of peace uh, at some point. But, you know, it was a big burden, you know. Well, yeah, it was also, like you said, sudden change can often manifest as trauma. Yeah. And to me, the same thing, not not to the degree that he had it, but to a certain degree. And it is, is there's definitely a period of adjustment. You yeah. know, it's not there's not like you're, you're prepared for that or, you know, how to deal with it, you have to just figure it out, you know, and all of a sudden, especially in a city like New York, where it's very concentrated and you're constantly are, you know, rubbing up against people. It's not like you're, you know, you're living in the hills and you get in your house and you drive to your meeting and you're, you know, New York, mm -hmm. you're out and about yeah. and, and you're around people. And, and um, it was a period of adjustment, I guess, for, for most of us. You mentioned before that Jim and you all took it really seriously. I wanted to ask you about um, your cinematographer, uh, Phil Abraham. Uh, there was a, a director uh, on the show. I still don't know his name. I'm not going to ask you his name. Because like any good Italian, you're not giving anything up. So uh, what people I, what I want people to understand is the director changes every week, you know, in TV. You know, that, that's the only thing that changes. We're always, the cast are the same and, you know, the crew's the same, but the director changes every week. So he's always the new kid in school. And I guess there was an instant where James said, I don't know about this guy. And he, and he, he tested the director by blowing a take. Yeah. So he, J Jim intentionally did a bad take. And the guy said, oh, we got it. Great. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. And then he went to the cinematographer who was had been a constant presence in all the episodes and said, hey, we got to watch this guy because I just blew a take on purpose. And he said, let's go, you know, because you want to, um, you know, in TV, there's always a pressure. Move along, move along. You, mm -hmm. gotta, you got so much to do in one day and you want to you want to get the shot and move on. And the, but there's no moving on if you don't have a good take, right? Yeah. What's the point? So yeah, what are we doing? He was basically testing this guy to say, all right, we have to kind of fend for ourselves a little bit here and watch our backs. Yeah. But to have that awareness, Michael, have that awareness and to be able to like, I got a plan. 
that I thought. Yeah, that was... he had that aware. He must have sensed something in the way the guy was directing that he felt that maybe he's, you know, directors come from all different uh, areas. Some mm -hmm. directors, some directors are pure directors. They go to film like Martin Scorsese, or they go to film school and they act, they know everything about film. They act, you know, they know about acting, they know about writing, they know about editing. They've done all that stuff. Some directors come from their cameramen and then yeah. they're dps and then they become directors some are producers and first ad's and then they become directors some are writers mm -hmm. you know some are actors yeah so and they all you know usually bring you know that's their strength or that's their strong point and that's okay if the problem is when a director thinks they know about acting and they don't right you don't have to know a lot about acting if you trust your actors and you let that, you know, you, like in that case, the guy should have said, Jim, how do you feel? Yeah. Do you want to do another one? Mm -hmm. You got one of the best actors in the world. Let him tell you how it's going. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. If you don't know. Um, the worst is when someone doesn't know anything about acting and pretends that they do. And then you're kind of, it's you're in a bad position because then you don't know what to say. I mean, you've experienced that. Yeah. I don't mind if you say you come from cinematography and now you're directing and you, you know, you don't know that much about acting, but you trust the actors. That's okay. You know, not everybody has to know everything. The best of course, is when you have somebody who knows everything mm -hmm. who's, who's great in all the departments. Um, I like working with directors who were actors like Steve Buscemi did um, some Sopranos and, and he, he's great because he really, he's a great actor and he understands acting. Yeah, really well. So even his first episode was the Pine Barrens episode, which is a, which is a classic Sopranos. And that was in the uh, towards the end of season three. By then, we had done 30 something episodes. So you're pretty familiar with your character by then. Right. Yet he managed to give me insight and direction and approaching things in ways that I wasn't thinking, which was great. You know? Yeah. When he can get something out of you and push you out of your comfort yeah. zone. I pulled this quote for you. I, I wanted to ask you about it because it, it spoke to me. You're in love with the idea of being a writer, but you really don't have anything to say. Oh, that was me be up until the age of 30. Yeah. So I started writing shortly before I started acting. Every year I would move pretty much, sometimes twice a year, you know, from when I was 20 to when I was 30. And I would bring all my writing with me. And over the years that would, you know, and it was like, half a play, half a screenplay, part of a story, part of a, you know, fragments of this and that. And after 10 years, that was a stack of stuff. And it was nothing had ever come to fruition or nothing mm -hmm. was really even completed. And one day I looked at all that stuff and I said, you are more in love with the idea of being a writer, you know, than you are with the actual writing because you don't have anything to say. Yeah. That's why you've never completed anything. And I threw all of it away in the garbage. 10 years of work stack of shit basically i threw it all in the garbage and after i did that it kind of unlocked something and then i got involved with a project that was very clear what i wanted to bring to it and what it would say and that actually came to fruition and got made so that was a good lesson yeah the experience of that and facing that when i read it i went he's making space for something else to occupy that space does that make any sense to you yeah, you're clearing out that, you know, that attachment to whatever it was, to this idea. And, you know, part of it's knowing that, you know, loving the art form and feeling that you could do it. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I've read interviews with writers when they say some of the best advice is to, you know, delay, hmm. delay, delay, delay. Because when you're young, you're in the midst of it, right? So it's hard to have some kind of objectivity. You need a degree of objectivity, I think, to write about something so you can look at it and turn it into art rather than it just being an, you know, an account like yeah. in the midst of it. So as you get older, you have a sense of objectivity about these things, a little bit of distance, you know, um, and I think that's that's valuable. You know? Yeah. I forget who said the quote, but live life going forward and you learn by looking back. That's exactly what I'm thinking. That's yeah. exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there was there was another thing that that happened while, while you're doing all this stuff, right? And while you're creating all this stuff, um, you had things happen to you early on. Like your second movie was fucking Goodfellas. 
was actually my fourth movie. The fourth but, movie? Because um, the, uh, the first one was the um, uh, the one I was Lean on Me. Yeah, Morgan Freeman. Which I had one line which got cut. And then I did two little indies where I had like a couple of lines. Mm-hmm. And then then I got good films. Yeah. You know? And then you're, you're in a fucking scene with yeah. De Niro, Pesci. Yeah. It was in all within a year, those three movies. Yeah. And then Goodfellas. So the first, you know, me was at uh, eighty eight, and Goodfellas was eighty nine. I, I got to ask, how did they treat you on the set? How did you feel on the set? What was that experience? Well, like? the, it was amazing because you know Scorsese and De Niro particularly were were my heroes. You know, sure. Some of the reason why I went into this business. Those preach, baby, preach. Um, when I saw Raging Bull. Um, when I was 14, it was in the movie theaters and I remember going to see it and I was just, I'd never seen anything like that, you know? It just really blew my mind. So, but part of me felt like those guys would get me in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, I just got them. So I naturally, so kind of assumed that they would get me. So I did a lot of research and I knew a lot about Scorsese and I knew that he liked improvisation. So when I auditioned, I did a lot of improvisation and he, and most of the stuff we shot actually was improvisation. But it was a big deal. You know, it's like all of a sudden you're going from like the minor leagues to the World Series at Yankee Stadium. You know, sure. literally for me, it's like that. And um, but luckily, my first experience that leaned on me was with John Alvinson, who directed Rocky. And it was a big Hollywood movie. And he was he was very overwhelmed. There was like a thousand extras, high school kids. And we were shooting in this school and it was always noisy. And I think he mm. was just. He had zero patience for me or for anybody and was not very nice mm. um, and made kind of made me feel like shit. I don't think it t- intentionally. I think he was just overwhelmed and, and just at the end of his rope. But it was a very bad experience. And it was with Marty was the complete opposite. He made me feel like I belong there. And I was an actor and I was just as much of an actor as anyone else on that set. And he, re- he treated me with that kind of respect. And I'm forever grateful to him for that. And so do the other guys. Yeah. You know, they made it very, very comfortable. And we were all actors and we were all there to make something great. And it wasn't, you know, there was no attitude. There was no bullshit. Um, It wasn't a, uh, you know, it wasn't a casual set by any means. Like Marty said, you know, the best thing you could do is treat the actors like the character on and off camera, Mm -hmm. which actually took a lot of the pressure off me. So you're not, there's Robert De Niro walking onto the set. And you're not like, oh, I love your work. You right, were so yeah. great in Taxi It was just like, I actually walked, the first thing I said to him, we weren't shooting. We were just kind of about to rehearse, maybe. He sat down at the table and I walked up to him and I said, what do you want to drink, Jimmy? And he kind of looked up at me like, shot of scotch, you know, <laughs> glass of water. Like at first he wasn't sure what's going on. And then he yeah, realized yeah. what I was doing. And he, I think he appreciated that because it's, Listen, the last thing he wants is, you know, me start to ask questions about his fucking career yeah. when he's trying to get, he's trying to work. Yeah. We're not, we're not there to, you know, have coffee, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, you got a job um, to do. The only thing I did went after, I shot two days. So this end of the second day, I was leaving and I went to uh, De Niro's trailer. Mm-hmm. His bodyguard was outside the trailer. I just said, I just want to say goodbye to Bob. And uh, <laughs> he opened the door. He's like, Bob, the kid wants to say goodbye. He's like, all right. And I, I go in and he's in his underwear putting his pants on. He's like, one second, one second. <laughs> I just said, I just want to say, you know, I'm a big fan. You know, this was a big experience and I hope I work again. He was very gracious and very, very nice. That's so, great. Cause that can go, that can go either way. Yeah. Well, that's why I figured I'd wait till it's all done. I'm sure. not going to like, I, I never made it casual. Let's talk about it. I asked for advice or bullshit, you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, you got to use your brain a little bit. Not yeah. just, you know, you have that effect now on actors coming up. Are you aware of that? Uh, you know, I mean, Soprano certainly is a beloved, you know, th- you know, kind of like what Raging Bull was to me, Sopranos mm-hmm. is to a lot of young people and stuff. And, you know, try to give good advice. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, we're our actors. We're all trying to do our best work. I mean, people ask me a lot. They want to be actors, what to do. And I always tell them to go to acting school, which that's not what they want to hear. Yeah, they don't want to do the work. They, yeah. everybody, everybody they want wants me to... to say, give me your number. I'll get you a job. Yeah. Or I don't know what the fuck they want. Yeah. Oh. yeah, they want the quick fix, which is what I, I wanted to ask you about doing the work, specifically meditation. You taught me something when I was doing my research on you. Uh, I saw a speech you made. I guess I was ready to hear it. And it was about compassion. Um, 
you're you're a Tibetan Buddhist, if I if I yeah yeah. See, I'm a Buddhist who practices in the Tibetan tradition. Tibetan, you took the vow to go back into samsara until everybody gets it. It's a tall order, my friend. Yes, it certainly is. But um, yeah, that's the Mahayana, you know, the the Bodhisattva vow. Um, um you know. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Though. It does. I mean, but the thing you taught me, the little speech I saw you make, was the word compassion is equal to or can be interpreted as respect. Yeah, there was a teacher that said that. I like, I remember. Yeah, that I'm helped me a great deal because you always thought compassion was, and I, my interpretation was maybe something in the vein of sympathy in that kind of family. And, yeah, or even pity. And pity, yeah, even that. So when, when that clicked in, I went, oh, yeah. I needed to hear that. Yeah, that's a that's a big. Uh, it was a great Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist teacher who said that, and it really clicked when I heard it. I mean, but the thing is, you take a vow like that, the Bodhisattva vow, right? Right. Mm -hmm. You're gonna you're gonna you vow to return until all beings are enlightened. And I said that early on as yeah. a Buddhist. Yeah. You don't really necessarily know what you you know how yeah. much. It's something that you grow into when you get deeper into the practice. You realize, well, it's, you know, so what I'm gonna be, you know in some pure land or existing outside of while other people are suffering. And then it does, you know, it takes a while to grow into that, to really understand what that means. I don't know if I have yet, you know, but I've had the benefit of having some really good teachers mm -hmm. and, and, and I, because of their wisdom, I have faith in it, in, in the practice. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I think, I really like do. I said, when, when you equated those two words, I was ready to hear that and could interpret to hear that. Like when I read the vow we're talking about, I'm interpreting it with the understanding I have now, which is like, man, I got, I don't have that kind of patience. Uh, and, and there well, is that. And compassion, would, compassion is also people equate it with have compassion for people who are less fortunate, but it's, you know, when you have to have compassion for people you hate or your enemies or people you, that infuriate yeah. you or people who you feel are oppressed or, or are men, you know, that that's, that's when it really becomes, you have to really use your mind and, and really apply it and figure out how you can cultivate that kind of compassion, you know, you know, without being a, a victim, without mm -hmm. condoning evil or harm and without, or, you know, just being a compassionate individual doesn't mean being a doormat. Yeah. You know? Compassion, patience, and simplicity. Those three things speak to me. Negative emotions cause the suffering. Stop that emotions. You stop the suffering and then. You can be healed or you will land in a better spot. Meditation was a, was a big key for me to, uh, And you went to, why did you start door. meditating? Uh, I was going through, I was getting panic attacks, Michael. And then I'm, so you're taking all kinds of, uh, medicines and stuff and wasn't working. And I started getting the panic attacks where I realized because when I go on stage or when I'm acting, I can, something not takes me over, but I can let go of my mind and it'll, right. it, it'll, I, it'll go. It'll go where it needs to go on its own. So having that awareness through my work and my art, I realized the panic is the same switch, but on the darker side. So if I, if I don't identify with my thoughts, I won't go on that ride. So I, right. I can come from choice and not just conditioned just be, response. Just be pulled into it and sucked into yeah. the, the abyss. So yeah. that's where I am. So in my reading and stuff and, and being at the point where I can... I can observe my thoughts where I can do that now. I don't do it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm batting about 300, you know, when the thoughts come up. Well, that's good. To sit into, to sit into that place of the witness and look at it. Yeah. And to notice them without, yeah. without judgment. Because when I first started noticing my thoughts, I was noticing like this, Michael. I see you, you motherfucker. I see you trying to get me to yell. And now I can notice them without judgment occasionally where they just float mm. by like clouds in the sky. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's very good. Mm. It's constant, though. I feel better when I get up and meditate. I make that part of my time for me in the day. Yeah. May I ask you this? The reason you started meditating, if, again, and if I'm reading correctly, you were on top of the fucking mountain, baby. You were in Sopranos. You had everything, I guess, any actor could ever want. Well, at least what I want, what I thought I wanted. Mm -hmm. I got into Buddhism just as the Sopranos ended. Mm -hmm. um, I got into Buddhism first before I started meditating. Okay. I actually <laughs> uh, became, I took vows to become a Buddhist. You mm -hmm. know, that, that's really like officially you take the refuge vows with a teacher 
with a lama, and that's officially becoming a Buddhist. Re- right? Refuge is like just to liken it to Catholic. It's like baptism, right? It's like is that... well, I don't know. It's you say you, you're taking refuge in the Buddha, yeah, which is Buddha himself, but also your teacher. Sure. In the Dharma, which are the teachings, and the Sangha, which is the community of Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So you're taking ref- that. That's called the Three Jewels. You take refuge in the Three Jewels until you reach enlightenment. So un- until you're you've kind of come to fruition mm-hmm. in these teachings and this has come to complete fruition, this is your refuge. And you take that vow. That's the first vow. The second vow is the Bodhisattva vow that you agree, you know, to mm-hmm. come back until all beings are liberated. But so I became a Buddhist. I was really interested in, I was kind of a spiritual seeker for a couple of years in a lot of very, some pretty weird, uh, I knocked on a lot of, doors and some were very disturbing and some were weird some were kind of normal christian science and shamanism and occultism and gurdjieff and a lot several different things and kind of landed in buddhism that made the most sense and then the teacher said well you're gonna have to start practicing every day Mm -hmm. i was like all right he's like you know maybe you'll start and he gave me some prayer stuff and then some meditation like 20 minutes a day i'm like 20 minutes a day are you out of your mind (laughs) Because back then it was like I'd wake up yeah. kind of half hungover and sure. you know, make coffee. And it took me, I'm like, what do you mean 20 minutes a day? I, I was like, this is never going to work. Yeah. I kind of thought you take the vows and that's it. Yeah, you're you know? done. That's you what... go to teachings once in a while and life is going to start becoming yeah. magic. Yeah. And it was not the case. Actually, it's actually not the case at all. And you have to do the work. So, And these things happen gradually and slowly. And things start to make sense a little bit here and there. And, and um you know, like a lot of things, uh, it's very, to me, it hinges on the teacher, you know, and I've mm-hmm. been lucky that my, my, my teacher I, you know, is a very special guy and, and I'm very grateful to, to have found him. And, and, uh, but I find the path, the Buddhist path to be something very um, authentic and very positive. Buddha was, it's not a theistic religion. Buddha is not a God, was not a God, is not worshipped as a God, was a man who reached what we consider the fullest potential of humanity, was enlightenment and, and really understanding reality and embodying that, right? So you aspire to those things, but it's really up to you. There's not so much of like, basically it's do no harm, right? Sure. Which means don't kill people, don't don't hurt people, don't, don't, don't steal, don't, don't lie, don't... Uh, Unless lie, unless it's, you know, it's better to lie. Some situations it's better to lie than mm. tell the truth, right? If, you, if someone asks you, how do I look today? You don't say you look like shit. You say yeah. you look great. You know, yeah. some old lady or somebody tells you that's a good lie, right? I'm going to say you look like shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So a lot of it has to do with intention. But, you know, uh, there's certain things you're not supposed to do that are just very sane things like, you know, that most people shouldn't do. Don't do no harm. Do good. Cultivate yeah. virtue, which means try to be kind, try to be generous, try to be patient, mm-hmm. you know, uh, be fair, uh, be loving and all those things. And then the third one is to tame the mind, right? Those are the three, the real es- essential teachings of, of Buddhism. And a, a lot of that really is up to you, you know? Well, a lot, yeah, a lot I, of this reading stuff was up to me. It was up to me to find a way to, I forget the quote, Michael, something about seeking salvation in the in the in the sense is like drinking salt water right uh pursuing sense pleasure like drinking salt water the more one drinks the thirsty one gets yeah like certain things that you grasp after uh lust after or things that are you know those kind of desirous things that really kind of like greed Mm -hmm. you know you see these people who you know they they're worth you know 500 million dollars and they're not going to rest till they're worth a billion you know what i mean it's like this yeah that doesn't, and even getting, there's no, I let, there's no sustained peace and or salvation in achievement. Right. Even when, you know, and I, I, it, I had, even in work, you know, when I, I'm, I'm happiest when I'm on a set, I'm happiest when I'm working. Um, but when I'm not working, I can't be miserable because now I'm beholden t- to that external force. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with you know you know sense play enjoying a nice meal or you you have sex with your your loved one whatever it is I mean you know look at some you know a beautiful view there's nothing wrong it's it's when it becomes an attachment where you have to you know like yeah addiction. when it becomes a source of identity yeah and you don't rest unless you get another hit or a bigger hit or you know 
you know, it, it starts to consume you and you start to become, you know, obsessed and indulging in, in negative ways. And then it becomes like salt water. But, you know, if you, if you can just appreciate it in the moment, no, that's, of course, you know, fine. You know, so, I, it just seems to me the path as I got into it just seemed very sane. To yeah. Me. It just made a lot of sense. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Looking back at those episodes for the podcast, Talking Soprano, anything strike you about how you are different now as a as an actor and as a person? Yeah. That, I mean, there's some scenes when I watch it, I'm like, man, you really missed it on that one. <laughs> and there's some scenes where I'm like, wow, I really like what you did there. Usually like the more simple, subtle things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really appreciate, you know, everyone thinks like the big emotional things are great acting. You know, that's where you see the great acting. It's like, to me, it's not, it's actually not that it's like little details, like in the moment or where you, you know, little things that just seem really real. That's to me what I get off on, you know? Um, So uh, I'm able to see things that are, you know, in the moment I'm like, and I see that for everybody, for all the actors, not Mm -hmm. just me. You know, from Jim on down, I could see, oh, that scene he didn't really nail. That scene he did nail. You know, you could see it. I say it about myself. Yeah. But there are moments where I really enjoy the work and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why this is good for the most part. You know, you know, when I look back and I just think of what what a great time it was, because uh, I knew most of those actors from before, mm-hmm. before The Sopranos. More, you know, most of them. I didn't know Jim, but I knew almost everybody else. So for all of us to have that success together was like a bonding thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's when it's a happy house. It, it, it's a lot of fun. I've been fortunate to get that a couple of times and it comes, it comes across uh, in the work too. I think so. Yeah. Talking Sopranos is a, is a, is a great thing you guys are doing because it, it allows people to relive something that, that, that they love the first time and, and love it even more from a different perspective. Uh, so I thank you and Steve for doing it. I've enjoyed it a lot. I, you know, I wasn't, I haven't watched these episodes since they initially aired. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. So this is the first time I'm really going back. You know, in the beginning, I just wanted distance from it. And then Jim passed away. And then I really wanted distance from it. And yeah. then, cause watching it was too painful, but now I feel like enough time has passed and going back and really looking at these with a fine, fine tooth comb. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really see, you know, I really see the great is not just the acting, man. I mean, the filmmaking, some the some, some directorial choices and camera work, let alone the writing, which is yeah. which is stellar, and the acting, which is, you know, top notch. But you really see why it was a success. It's very yeah. good, and it holds up. The perfume burns his eyes is your novel. Mm-hmm. Are you working on the movie of that novel? And can I play Sterling Morrison? If you put together the Velvet Sterling's Underground. Sterling's not in it. <laughs> oh, you're not going to put together? I thought the Velvet Underground was going to be in it. The Velvet are not in it. Lou is in it. It's post-Velvet. It's, oh. it's 77. But if he was or winds up, sure. sure. But um, 77, that was, he went, Lou went to live with his family. Like after the Velvets broke up, he went back home. 69. He yeah. went back to Long Island. Yeah, he worked for his father. <laughs> yeah, he was like an accountant or some shit. He worked for his father doing bookkeeping in Long Island after the Velvet Underground. Can you imagine? Yeah. And that's and when then, Bowie Bowie dragged him out. Yeah. Imagine yeah. that going after this, you know, being in the most influential groundbreaking rock band ever. Although most people didn't know that at the time. And then that kind of fell apart and you really messed up and go out back to Long Island and doing bookkeeping. It's a crazy story. Yeah. That is true. The book takes place in 77. I have been starting to work on adapting. It wasn't really my intention to do it as a film. It mm-hmm. really was just a book. Right. Uh, but um, after doing a lot of live readings and mm-hmm. at different events, you know, it kind of started to come to life. And I started reading it with some other actors uh, in nightclubs and, and events and stuff. And it, and it really started to kind of come to life. So, yeah, hopefully that'll be a movie. Yeah. Soon. You You knew Lou, right? Yeah. That was one of the reasons why he... You know, the book, I started writing the book in 2013 in the summer when my son was 16. And I really, I really started writing it as a way of relating to being a 16 year old Mm -hmm. because he was dealing with all, you know, 16 year old problems. And I was trying to, you know, relate to that, 
mind. And then a few, a few months into the writing in October, October 28, 2013, Lou died. Yeah. And I had known him for like the last dozen years of his life. We'd, we'd become friends. So his death hit me not, you know, on a several levels as an, as an artist and as a New Yorker and a, as, as a friend as well. And as a fan. Yeah. And it was a big deal, you know, when he passed, it was hard. And then suddenly, somehow the idea came, well, what if Lou is in the story with this kid? And then it just kind of took off from there. Yeah. That's great. It was great because I was, it felt like I was kind of with him a lot. I mean, it took me a couple of years to write. Right. Uh, on and off between jobs, you know. But, you know, those hours sitting there, you know, writing the story felt like Lou was around. It was cool. Yeah. That time, because that, that was, I wasn't old enough to really process that time, but I always go back to the like, 70s kind of New York. Me Yorkers. too. I yeah. was, I think we're close in age. Yeah. I was, a, no, I was, I wasn't a teenager then. So, but, but I'm more attracted, you know, kind of nostalgic of the yeah, art. Yeah. I, I was looking from the point of view is like, oh, that's what, the, that's what the cool kids are doing. You know, that's, yeah, I don't really exactly. understand it. It's like, and you wrote um, or co-wrote Summer of Sam. That was also 77. Yeah, I was going to say that. that, And I remember, Michael, I remember when that hit. That was the first time of everyone was focused on one thing. I know. My first experience that everyone was focused on what the Where f were you living? I was on uh, Long Island. Yeah. And it was happening in New York. And then when they in caught Queens, him. Queens and Brooklyn and, and, and the Bronx. Yeah. And it yeah. was. Uh, and uh, yeah, but I remember that was the first time I felt a galvanized energy. I, I wasn't aware of it, but I felt a galvanized energy of of the people focused on the yeah, one thing. Certainly was. And it was there was seductive thing because you were terrified, but you wanted to be a part of it because you didn't want to be left out of what was going on. I really couldn't understand. I knew it was dangerous, but this is what everybody was focusing on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And I think now we have those experiences a lot more because of the way media works, the way we're plugged in 24 yeah. seven to things and media and TV and news and all that stuff. And back then it was not the case, you know, we didn't have it. You, you played outside, you drank out of a hose. That's it. Yeah. yeah. You watch the news at five and 11 and buy the newspaper. That was, was it. no 24 hour feed, no internet. You know what I mean? It's just like, you had one phone in the house. There was yeah. no answering machine. There was no cell phones. I'd go back in a minute to all that. You, you know what? <laughs> I think I would. I would go back if uh, you can go back. Uh, you can go back now. Where are you going to go? I think I'd go back there. I don't know. I think I would too. I would, but I would go back with the knowledge. You got now. You got to go back as you were then, or you got to go back as now. I don't know. That's yeah. a good question. With the knowledge of all the teams that won this, so you can gamble. Oh, I'm going to make a shitload of money. Shit, yeah. I'm buying Apple stock early. You buy Apple early, right? All Amazon. Right. I'm going to write a lot of great songs. Write a lot of great songs Shit, that haven't yeah. been written. Yeah, that would be good. I can't thank you enough, my friend. I I was looking forward to talking to you, and I want to thank you again for that that clarity in that speech. You put it out there, and I found it, and it, it helped me a great deal. So I thank you for that. Uh, you thank the, the the Tibetan Buddhist lamas. That's that's. I'm just imitating or parroting <laughs> what they're saying. It's not my. It wasn't my thought. But it came but through you and touched me, and I'm, I'm grateful glad you for got it. to hear it. So, and uh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun to talk to you, Adam. I appreciate it. Ah, best to you and the family, my friend. Be well. The podcast is called Talking Sopranos. Thank you, my friend. Take yeah. care. The Adam for our podcast is brought to you by CruiseIntoWellness.com. Now, let's say your fourth movie, you're working with Martin Scorsese, Joe Pesci, Ray Liotta, and Robert De Niro. That could cause you a little anxiety. A little bit. If you find yourself in that position, why don't you do what I do? Take one of the gummies they have at CruiseIntoWellness.com. They also have edibles, tinctures, pain creams, bath products, pet products, and I'll tell you what. 20% off with the coupon code ADAM. Yes, 20% off anything they have at cruiseintowellness.com. Go, feel better. I was looking forward to that interview, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Adam, I know you just met, but you guys seem like old friends. Mm. I like when you connect with people, and we get the benefit of hearing that. It's nice. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And you know what, too? One of the fun aspects of doing this podcast is having, you know, an actor on who you admire and respect, and then you see how deep he is as a person. Yeah. I just can't yep. believe Lou Reed was an accountant. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's what you took away from it.
Yes. <laughs> the guy is in the Velvet Underground. And now I'm going to go back to what you, like Long Island. He's a bookkeeper. The man, the man took yeah. a vow for his soul to return to Earth until all beings are enlightened. But you went. Lou Reed had to go back and work for his father. <laughs> yes. That'd okay. All right. Well, fine. I did take a lot out of it because I really enjoyed hearing you guys talk. Uh, I loved your quote, particularly about life is living life is moving forward and understanding is looking back yeah it's that a, really stuck with me well, yeah i liked you. it too thank you it, it, it's yep. it's not me it's kierkegaard but okay oh, <laughs> it's, oh. listen it's either adam ferrara or some danish philosopher we don't know <laughs> well you, you're still from the good people that's true well no because it's, um, it's true when you're in it you know like when you're in <clears throat> like you're experiencing it you 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 don't you can't see it because you're in it you need perspective on things to understand them things have to be uh, understood in context and in comparison the human mind works to compare to something else you know the alpha and the omega light and dark ginger and marianne yes honey <laughs> i actually people might laugh because they know you as a comic as an actor they mm. don't really get to see you day to day like i do but i do there's a thrill everyone should, should be exposed <laughs> to but yes go ahead <laughs> but i actually do see you playing that out what like you you might have a like a, a quick reaction mm -hmm. to something but I see you kind of working it out in your head, and then you kind of, I, I, I'm actually, I greatly admire that. Oh, I, I can see that. You thank know? you, baby. Yeah, I'm just trying to get better. That's why I do the meditation. I'm like, listen, these pills ain't working. I got to do something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all have to calm the demons down, you know, in our own ways. Demons. You know? <laughs> other demons Phil other yeah. demons other demons, demons. Yeah. Lamp. <laughs> yeah. you know what people either gonna take pills meditate or move a lamp <laughs> that's right <laughs> turn my lamp off they'll go away that's the best way that's to do funny. it that's funny yeah I, I liked also what he said and you guys were talking about with compassion Thought yeah that, that helped really... me a great deal yeah that, okay because we I think I think I might have mentioned you guys the the Lao Tzu the three quotes from Lao Tzu to really helped me a lot was uh, the three things that you should look for in life is simplicity patience and compassion I think I might have mentioned to you guys I'm out on three pitches <laughs> <laughs> well maybe the important thing is that you try Adam yeah but when I was researching Michael I found I found a a, a speech he gave and it said compassion equals respect and I went ding yeah. yeah, that makes that sense. was good. Yeah, I don't have to agree. I just have to respect that it is here. It being an opinion I don't agree with. It being a, a, a demon by a lamp, you know something. <laughs> yeah, you know what though? Too his humility and not taking credit for that statement. Great. I didn't take credit for Kierkegaard. I'm an asshole. Basically. <laughs> 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 well, that's you. That's yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just impressed that you're listening to Danish uh, philosophers. Danish philosophy? Yeah, I got a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but compassion and respect, what helped me um, specifically when I heard that was it takes out, for me, it took out the element of uh, control. I didn't have to control this. I could just have to appreciate that. Look. I'm just I'm just a squirrel trying to get a nut. You know, there's a lot of yeah. trees and stuff here that I don't want to climb sure. up, but the trees are still going to be here. Yeah. So that's it helped me with my control issue. Hmm. I like what you guys also said um, was that compassion is not pity. I thought that was a very important yeah. note and something again that resonated with me in a big, big way. Yeah. At first, when I thought compassion was coming from pity or that emotional family, it inspired resentment in me. I'm like, oh, I gotta feel now. I gotta feel sorry for this bastard. I got enough problems. <laughs> Right. Or it elevates you, like artificially elevates you in somebody. It's like, you know, compassion is trying to be on the same level. And if it's pity, it's like, well, I'm above you and I'm looking down on you, even if I have good intentions. Yeah. You can respect you can respect and honor someone else's choice without having to have your ego look down on something. That's exactly. very, it's very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, wow. That is great. Gee, where'd you get that from, Stern? Wow. <laughs> Some demon gave it to me. I don't know. <laughs> wow, Mark. Wow. You had some good no, fortune cookies deep, last man. night. That was deep. I'm impressed. I yeah. like that. Yeah. You know what I, I also liked? What? The, the fact that you're both New Yorkers. Yeah. But the, the similarity might end there, Adam. Why well, figure? <laughs> because he's so calm and you're not. What? <laughs> he was very calm. Yeah, he, he was, was very calm. He was very centered. I, I, I was a little wound up. I don't mind telling you. And it wasn't just during the interview. I'm still wound up. I get him wanting to go back to New York because he likes interaction mm -hmm. with people. But myself, growing up in California and you know living in New York part time, and it's kind of a double edged sword to me. Why? Because I love the people too and the museums and all that kind of stuff. But 
it stresses me out. New York. I need the ocean and just to see a long ways and mm -hmm. not to be so close to people. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> kind of freaks you out. Yeah, it does. You, you should you should do what I do, Alex. Move. Yeah, just move. <laughs> well, yeah, just you move. know. Phil, Phil can get you a great deal on an apartment. He, he, all you got to do is just go to crimescenes.com. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Back to that now. There's probably a website. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, they, see, they, for they, me, they... see, for me, the secret of life is not moving forward. It's the secret of life for me is moving. That's it. <laughs> it's not <laughs> moving, just, period. Yeah. Just keep moving. I ain't looking back. I ain't looking back. I got nothing. <laughs> Life happens to Phil when he moves. Yeah, I'm just going to keep packing and unpacking. It'll all be over soon. <laughs> you oh, are man. beautiful, Philip. <laughs> yeah, I did, the thing that uh, about me being wound up, even when I when I was listening to it, I was like, yeah, I'm a little intense. <laughs> no. But we both have the, the thing we shared and what he, um, and I feel I thought of you, the thing we shared is the work ethic of doing the work and even mm -hmm. when he said, even with meditation, what he said, it was like, give me the beads, give me the inc incantation, and let me be done with it. Mm. You know? Yeah, he said, yeah, he said uh, one of the things he admired about the character of Chris Maltasanti was the, the work ethic that he had. Mm -hmm. And he used the example of uh, when he wanted to write a movie. He didn't, you know, obviously he had enough money to hire someone to do it, but he wanted to sit down and do the work. Yeah, yeah, but he did it, and he liked that in in the character, which is which is kind of cool. You have to find something you like to play, so you can be honest playing a character. I'll be honest with you. I played a cop on Nurse Jackie, uh -huh. and she's a drug addict, and I had to find a way why I didn't know about drug use. And I'm a police officer. I was like, really? <laughs> You're the worst cop. No, yeah. I I have to disagree with you. What? Because a lot of times, it when it's close to you, mm -hmm. you don't see it. That's true. Well, I, I, or you forgive it. Yeah, I, I made the choice. Like I can control it. That's what I had to do. Well, I have to say you're very good in it. Thank you. I'm I, not just saying that. I do this to impress you. Well, you did. <laughs> the point is, I like the fact that he liked something about the character he played. Yeah. Yes. It helped. You know? Yeah. For sure. And well, it, he identified. He identified with that aspect of Chrissy, the work ethic. Because mm -hmm. obviously, he applies that to his own life. Well, and it was such a rich character. Yeah. I mean, there was. The character arc for him was so much fun to watch. I mean, painful a lot of times, mm -hmm. but boy, was that a great journey. Mm -hmm. And they do say that when you're playing a character, even if, if it's evil or bad or, you know, a criminal, mm -hmm. you actually have to find a place where, where you yeah. can relate. You got to find something where you can come from truth. Even the bad yeah, guys don't think right. they're the bad guys. That's right. You know? That's right. Yeah. They justify right. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're soldiers, as Tony Soprano put it. You know, we're soldiers. Mm-hmm. Well, that and, and I think the and I that liking the characters also and liking what you're doing also contributes to the to the whole of of the show. I mean, that's why I I was lucky enough to be on Rescue Me and Jackie and other stuff. And we, I love and that. Top Gear, and we love what we were doing, and that was communicated to the audience. And I think that's the same thing when I said it's a happy house. Yeah. that's what I meant about the Sopranos. Uh, and that's sure. one of my favorite things about life mm. is how we create families outside our families. Yeah. I love that. I yeah. think that's true community. That's what it's all about. Yeah. That, that, that's Amen. what I'm trying to do with, with this show, and I, I hope we get a chance to continue to do it. Phil, don't take a bath. <laughs> <laughs> you won't get out of that tub, Phil. Don't take a bath. <laughs> wash yourself at the gas station. Buy a convertible. Go through a car wash with the top down. That's how you bathe. <laughs> That's, That's funny. Good. I'll brush my teeth at the same time. Yeah. And <laughs> and the protective nature of the show when Gandolfini blew a take on purpose. Oh, that was I wild. love that. that First was of all, wild. he's the only one that could do that on that show. I mean, he's the only one that could actually pull that off. No one else could have done that, you know? Yeah. But how, I mean, but how intimidating, like you made an interesting point, Adam, the director is a different director every week. So going into that situation had to be intimidating. I mean, you're directing Tony Soprano, you know what I mean? Mm hmm you could, you know, I could, hey, Cecil beat the mill. Take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a different situation. Yeah, we're moving on. We ain't got it yet. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, take two. Take all gots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Adam, I know that you hung out with him. Mm -hmm. Was he that intimidating when you were? Oh, he could be. Him? I mean, well, the first time I met him, I was at that, uh, that uh, a function. It was a formal kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You were with me, Phil. It was that art thing. When I had to host that art auction, and he was there. They, he was naming some something, and it was in his honor. Yeah, that was the, uh, let me get in there, too, picture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you and him took a picture. And I was like, let me get in there, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
But I mean, and, and, and Michael said something that he was so, he was like larger than life. And when he walked into that room, I saw Tony Soprano. Yeah. I didn't see James Gandolfini. I was like, wow, that's Tony Soprano. Yeah. So in, the, in those circumstances, when I first met him, he was this, this big guy. And then later we hung out and that's where I saw the gentleness. And then I, mm-hmm. once we, uh, once I, and I saw him on the street and we were bullshitting on the street, he was on his scooter. The, the guy rode a scooter. Okay. He was on the streets. <laughs> yeah, he did? Yeah. He rode a scooter. I saw him on a scooter a couple Like a times. Vespa? Yeah. Like a Vespa. <laughs> um, I can't picture him on that. Yeah, it it, it 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 was big, big guy on a scooter. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, That's but so there was cool. a gentleness to him. There was a gentleness in his eye, and 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 he laughed a lot when we hung out. So it was it was, oh, it was nice very nice. He was a very sweet man. I don't know him as well as you know those guys did, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. but I really enjoyed his company when I had time to spend with him. I like when I they remember, call him Jimmy. I remember a really cool moment when you went up to him to say hello and you reminded him of something you and him did. And he recalled that. And then he went, oh, yeah. And his yeah. face lit up like with pure joy. It was like there was pure joy that he recognized you from whatever it is you and him had done before. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was a sweet man. He was a regular guy. He was. He was a sweet guy. Yeah. Whatever the fuck. <laughs> Yeah, and and the fact that now they're going back and revisiting that, you know, I don't think I could have do. I couldn't do that show. I can't watch the shit I'm on now. I'm not going back. <laughs> Wait, didn't you go and audition for that like a million times? Ten times, <laughs> ten times. <laughs> and Stern, here's the deal: when you audition for The Sopranos, you got to take the subway at five o'clock in rush hour. You take the N and the R from my from my apartment down in the village. You got to fight rush hour and that crush of humanity to get out <laughs> to see every other Gindaloon that looks just like you online. <laughs> to go in to read for David Chase, and by the third or fourth time, I go, "What aren't you gonna like this time, David?" <laughs> And to his credit, he would laugh and, and he would say hi, Adam, every time I showed up. But they kept pitching to me. They kept pitching to me and I kept going. And every time I was done doing a scene, he always said, next! <laughs> <laughs> wasn't uh, meant to be, Adam. It wasn't meant to be. That's okay, dude. I really enjoyed uh, talking to Michael. I, I want to thank him for taking the time. The podcast is called Talking Sopranos uh, with my pal and friend of the show, Steve Sharippa. Uh, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, honey, if they want to get a hold of us, where do they go? The Adam Ferrar at Gmail. And if you have time to leave us a review, that helps us with our friend. Mr. Algorithm. And tell a friend. Tell a friend about the show. The show is uh, growing. It really is, and we're very uh, we're very excited about that. And we're very excited we can be with you guys every week. So please remember, life is hard. Take it easy on yourself. The part has ended. Go in peace. Phil has a pre-existing condition, so that's why he's nervous. He's, he's an idiot. <laughs> Yeah. I'm glad you took great delight in that, Alex. <laughs> you too, Stern. I'm laughing at Alex laughing. I love you, buddy. Oh, it wasn't that oh. funny. <laughs> oh, Philip. Yes, it was. I'm LOLing. <laughs>